Is that how you really feel? Come on. Good evening, church. I love that. I love that. Well, it's great to see you. It is a privilege to see you. And I'm excited to get in the word with you tonight. So let's not skip anything. Let's uh, skip the pleasantries and let's just go right into the word of God. Into Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you will see some in the aisles here already and set up for you. Matthew chapter 5, as many of you know, and for those of you who are new here and it's your first time, welcome to Sunday evening service. We are going through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in chronological order. That means sometimes we're in Matthew, sometimes we're in Luke, sometimes we're in John. Uh, Every once in a while we're in Mark as well. And so uh, we are going to be going through his life chronologically. And right now we are in the Sermon on the Mount. And we just got done with the Beatitudes. And now we are in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify, this is important, your Father in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Oh, God, we love you. And it is a privilege and a joy, God, to to study your character and your attributes, Lord. And you are so holy and you are so good to us, Lord, that the more we learn about you, the more we learn about ourselves, Lord, as well. Father, Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would dwell in this place tonight, God. And Lord, you would give us insight, Lord, onto how to be more intimate with you, Lord, and with others around us. Bless this night, and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we, we studied last week, which I thought was a pretty epic study. I, I, I liked last week's teaching when, when we went through, blessed are the peacemakers, right? For they shall be called sons of God. And, and, and I love that whole concept, blessed are the peacemakers, because we found out that, that, that a pursuit of peace will naturally breed conflict, right? Because the one thing about peace is that it's a problem, that if one person's seeking peace in one way and the other seeking peace in another way, they, they naturally come together and it creates conflict, and so, so we find out that blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who seek to amend relationships between two parties, for they shall be called sons of God, because we, we see that the Son of God is the Prince of Peace. And then the most epic way to pursue peace in our world is, is to pursue relationships with others so that they might mend their relationship with their Heavenly Father. That this is the ultimate way to gain peace. And, and I love how Jesus describes that, that those, uh, it's blessed, oh how happy are the peacemakers. Oh, how happy are those that pursue mended relationships with other people. Blessed are those who pray for others. Blessed are those who seek to reconcile relationships. Blessed are those who pray and greet one another in the love of Christ. And, and here when, we, when Jesus describes us as salt and light, he furthers this message of peacemaking. He furthers this message of peacemaking because we see that, that Jesus has declared us to be something. And that means a very specific 
a very, very specific mission for us. Does that make sense? Because Jesus has declared us to be salt and light, that means a certain set of things, and we're going to be learning about that. You know, I have grown up in the church for the majority of my life. Actually, all of my life I've been in the church. I've had the pleasure and the privilege of having a pastor as a father. And and, and I can tell you something that that all my life I've been in the church and I've been been talking with people in the church and I've been influenced by people in the church and and I've I've sought counsel by many people that are older than me. And there's one thing that as a youth that many people will tell you. Uh, many people will tell you a specific thing as a youth. They will tell me that the world is my enemy. This is scary. Many people will tell me that the world is my enemy. We grow up in church finding, uh, being told that the world is our enemy. We speak of protecting ourselves, our family, and our integrity from being tainted by the world, right? The world. We're always speaking of combating against the world, going against the world, going against the flow of the world, going against the culture of the world, combating the people in the world, speaking against the people in the world. We always talk about this. In the church, this is something that has been inundated. And, and what, I, what I'm going to submit to you tonight is that this mentality of the world is your enemy this mentality that the world is, is we're battling against it, it's, it's, it's scary. It creates two things in a youth such as myself and a Christians all together. When we're told the world is your enemy, the world is your enemy, the world is your enemy. Stay away from the world as much as possible. Have nothing to do with them. That'll breed two different perspectives. One, if I can't beat them, I'll join them. That's one thing that will start to happen. If we see the world as our enemy and we see the world as something to go against, what what will start to happen is we go and seek to press against the world. Something will happen where we're like, I can't beat them. So I might as well just join them. I might as well just indulge in the sins of this world so I don't get persecuted so much. I might as well entrench myself in, in, in everything. I might as well indulge in all the pleasures that they seek as well. So, so I would just stop getting bombarded with persecution. That's one mentality that is bred out of thinking that the world is our total and complete enemy. But we find out that the war isn't against flesh and blood, is it? The second mentality that, that the world is your enemy, it, it, breeds, it breeds this thing where if I can't beat them, I'll leave them. If I can't beat them, I'll kick them against the curb, right? If I can't beat the world, if I can't combat the world, then, then I'm going to take my family. We're going to seclude ourselves in the mountains. We're not going to wear shoes and we're going to make our own jam, right? Like, like this is what people do. My kids won't cut their hair, right? And we won't be, we'll, we'll just be in the mountains until we die, right? And that's, that, that's something that, that people, when they, when they see the world as their enemy, when they see the world as their enemy and something to flow against, what they'll say is, I can't beat them. My kids can't beat them. So we got to take them completely out of the world before we get uh, choked, before we get persecuted to death. And, and so we have Christians that either are engaging in worldly and sinful acts in order to fit in or to avoid persecution, or we have Christians separating themselves into their own, own bubbles and, and, and shunning everyone around them. 
And this honestly, it's a sad way to live as a Christian. It's a very sorrowful way to live as a Christian when, when we completely either separate or dive into the world. Because we, we learn in the Bible that when it speaks to the world, it doesn't necessarily mean planet Earth as much as it means our culture and society, our city, our sphere of influence. And, and so too often, it, it strips the joy away from our Christian walk. And as a Christ follower, it's just not fun, right? Because, you know... Uh, we're we're going to learn tonight. I mean, it's it's good to have fun as a believer in Christ. Man, I, I, I one of my greatest joys in my father's suit is we love to take people surfing and minister to them. We love to do that. All right, we we love to do these types of things where everything can be an avenue for ministry, and we can have fun with Jesus. It's possible. It's attainable. Hallelujah. And, and, and so too often, and, and I love this quote by J.R. Kirk, he says this, and bear with me, it's kind of a long quote, and it's not in the Bible, so I don't like quoting people that aren't, you know, in Bible, but it says, too often, those who proclaim faith in Jesus view our position in the world as small, persecuted, powerless minority, striving as best we can to plug our little Christian narratives into the overwhelming narrative of sin, death, and corruption. And when we see ourselves as so small and our power so slight, we perceive our calling as one of them uh, making holy enclaves to protect ourselves from the impurities and powers of the world. How different is our posture when we see that the big story, the true story, is the story of the kingdom come with power. A power that does not succumb to the powers of the world, either by imitation or by retreat. We do not come as agents of a small story into the overwhelming true story of the real world. No, we enter in as agents of the true story, messengers of the true king, whose story ultimately determines the outcome of the little stories of power, separateness, and segregation. This is a powerful concept. This whole concept that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of of the world. We are a city set on a hill. And, and, and what I find very cool and interesting is that Jesus doesn't say you ought to be salt. You ought to be light. You ought to be a city on a hill. No, 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 no. This is what God has declared you as. If you are a Christ believer in this room, if, if you have Christ in you, what, what has happened is Christ has labeled you as such. He says you are the salt. You are the light. You are the city set on a hill. And all I am asking you to do is be who you are. I love when Augustine said, he said, love God and do as you please. Love God and do what you please. Meaning that if you're living in a life of God, whatever you please, whatever is fun to you, that that automatically is going to be something that glorifies him. It's very amazing. And, and, And when... When we separate ourselves from the world, when, when we say as Christians, as non-believers, when, t- towards non-believers, when we say, I, I don't want anything to do with them, I don't want to be tainted by them. When, when we say these things, what we're doing is we are removing ourselves from the mission of God. The same thing happens when we limit our Christianity just to the church. We are limiting the mission of God and we are not taking part in the mission of God because it says, for God so loved the 
world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, this is God's desire. God's desire is for the world to come to him. And he uses us as Christians as an avenue to attain that. And it's an amazing thing, is it not? That God would choose to use us as salt and light. And so Jesus crushes the two mentalities that we ought to be in the world and engaging in the sins or to be removing ourselves completely when he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? First, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are salt. It is a fact of being a Christian. You are salt. And in the context of Jesus's time, when, when, when we look at the context, salt was used as a preservative and a seasoner, right? And many of you have heard this before. Salt is used as a preservative and a seasoner. You see, salt was used to preserve food, to slow down and eventually stop decay in food. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have fridges, right? And they didn't have fast food. So that they had to keep their food fresh somehow, okay? They had to keep their food fresh somehow. So what they would do, they would, they would lather it. They would sprinkle salt all over it. They would submerge it in salt so that it wouldn't decay, Salt was also used to season food. It made it pop out and it gave the food flavor. Salt was necessary and needed in every household. That's what I want we all to, uh, us to understand. That salt was necessary in this culture. Salt is a necessary commodity. Uh, very often Roman soldiers were paid in salt. It was a very precious a uh, precious thing back then. And it was needed no matter how poor you were, no matter how rich, you always needed salt in your house. You needed it. You needed it to feed your family. Salt was also used to help with uh, cultivating crops and soil. And so we see that salt was a very precious commodity. And, and when God says that you are the salt of the earth, He's saying that Christians are necessary in our culture. Many times we don't see ourselves as necessary. Because a lot of the times, I don't know about you, but I, I, I feel like many times I'm, I'm the minority. Right? In, you know, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be at school. A lot of the times we feel like, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the minority here. I'm outnumbered. People seem to hate Christians more now than they did ever. How on earth would I be precious to this culture? It seems that the culture wants nothing to do with us. And, and what I would submit to you is that Christians are needed. Christians are needed in the culture. We are needed to preserve the moral faculties of our nation. That, that is our job as Christians to be submerged in the culture and prevent decay in relationships and business places and in schools. This is our function as Christians. We are to slow down and eventually stop the decay of sin. Now is salt useful if it's next to the food? No. Salt is only useful when it is in the food, right? It is only useful when it's not useful in the salt shaker. It's useful in the food. Think of the church as one 
big salt shaker. And I'm going to be telling you guys this. Just, you know, this is something you can tell your Christian friends. Hey, man, stay salty. <laughs> hey, girl, stay salty. Stay salty today. You know, text them. Hey, good night. Stay salty. All of this stuff. We as Christians, this church is one big salt shaker. And what use is the salt in the salt shaker? We need to get out in this world, guys. We stop seeing the world as our enemy. It needs us. We are to submerge ourselves. We are to rub ourselves. We are, we are to be deep into the culture, preventing the decay and helping to disinfect our culture. But do you know what I think most importantly, what salt does? It makes you thirsty. Right? Man, salt makes you thirsty. Yeah, I, I, I had some amazing french fries for lunch today. But dude, I, I had to chug down three glasses of water. And, and what I love, in John 4, verse 13, it says, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up in everlasting life. Salt makes you thirsty. And us as Christians being the salt of this earth, when people see us, they shouldn't say, ew. Right? They shouldn't say, that's weird. I don't want what they want. They should be like, I'm kind of thirsty. What do they got? What do they got? And, and, and it's like I said last week that, that it should grieve us when people don't feel welcome around us. You know that? It should really grieve us when people feel like they're not welcomed around us. Some people are like, well, they just don't know my personality. No, 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 no. <laughs> people should feel welcome around you. People should feel thirsty around you. People should want God when they're around you. Salt makes you thirsty. We are the salt of this earth. Salt scatters also. Salt scatters. Some of you stay right here. Some of you call to other places, right? Man, there are missionaries in here. I know it. Salt, it, it, it stays in the culture where it's at, but we also scatter all throughout the nations as a church as a whole. This is our mission. Salt scatters, and then we're going to learn that, that light gathers. And so in verse 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A city, uh, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and give its light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they shall see your good works and glorify who? That's a big deal. We have to make sure we know that verse. You see, this whole concept of light and being lights in a world, in the cities on a hill, you know, I think uh, it's kind of lost in our culture a little bit. And I'll tell you why, because we actually have too much light, right? There, there's actually light pollution, okay? I take my junior hires up to camp and they say, Zach, what's that? I'm like, it's a star, dude. <laughs> they're like, oh, I've read about those in books. <laughs> like, yeah, they exist. Because here, it's like there's so much light that it's light pollution blocking all the stars, right? There's lights, uh, headlights in cars, street lights on the streets, house lights, buildings, billboards. There's lights everywhere. And so many times we, we lose this whole concept of what it means to be a light in a world because there's lights everywhere. And in fact, sometimes they're annoying, right? Have you ever been in front of a car who has massive headlights? 
headlights on. It's just annoying, right? And, and so a lot of the times we, we, we lose this concept of what it means to be a light in the world because there's so much light here in our modern society. But actually back then, I mean, there was no electricity. They, all they had was fire, torches, lamps. When it was dark out, you couldn't do anything. People didn't want to go outside because sketchy stuff happened. I mean, I, I, I've been in Africa where there's no lights. And I've been walking the streets, right? And, and I, as, a, as a man, like, I, I was scared. Uh, you know, my, my, I was freaked out. <laughs> because there's no lights around me. I couldn't have my phone. I didn't have a flashlight. And I'm just walking around hoping that nobody jumps me, Right? Have any of you been in, in one of those sketchy situations where it's just dark out? Or maybe some of you, you even go out to the tr- take out the trash at night and you run back in as fast as you can. Because light, I mean, darkness is scary. Okay, darkness is just, it's scary. The whole concept of light to us, sometimes it's, it's weird. But in Jesus' time, light was a precious commodity as well. Just as precious as salt. Light was just as precious because darkness was a serious plague back then. Darkness left people frightened, immobile, and helpless when they were trying to find their way. Weary travelers would seek a city because though there were small lamps in each house, if there was a big city set on a hill and you were a weary traveler, you would see that city on a hill and you'd be like, Thank God! I'm not lost! And the wolves won't be near. There's a city right there. I know where I'm going. And, and so we have to think, when, we, when God says that we're lights and we're a city on a hill, this is the perspective that we should be looking at, that our entire world is in utter darkness, and there's this light. The only light that people can go to. You know, I, I, I work with youth ministry, and, you know, I hear a lot of parents telling me, and, and, and this is a total true statement, you know, that, that, that our public schools are dark, full of darkness. And I, I, it's true. I, I, I was in them. And, and I've realized that they're dark because we've either removed the light or the lights that are there are under baskets. That's why it seems so dark. And I know because I, I was one of them for a long time. You know, just because when you're the only light, you're scared sometimes. Actually, I should say this. When you don't realize you're the light, you're scared. I shouldn't say when you're the only light. Because when you don't realize that you're the light, darkness is scary. When we don't realize that we are the light of this world, we are the light. Darkness and evil and sin and our culture will seem frightening. But in a dark room, you flip on the switch. What happens? It's not dark anymore. Have you ever been in a light room and flipped on the dark? That can't happen, right? It's impossible. Darkness is the absence of light. Darkness isn't a substance in and of itself. And so a lot of the times, it, our culture may seem so bleak and so dark because we've hidden our lights. 
And that's something that I have to struggle with. You know, people ask me all the time because I work in ministry. You know, I, I work here at the church and, and I always get people asking me when I tell them that I go to Cal State Channel Islands, a very liberal school. They ask me, why are you there? Why aren't you going to a Bible college like everyone else is supposed to? And, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons why not, but my answer usually to them is, what use would I be in a Bible college? What use would I be there? Yeah, public college is a dark place. Why not turn on the light? Amen? It goes with the same in your workplace, in your families, in your relationships. It's a, if it's a dark place, flip on the light. It's as simple as that. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, he says, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice and I will share your joy. Paul says that lights don't back down from darkness. Light presses in. Light presses in because light is an unstoppable force in a dark room. Is it not? Even if there's one light, it can illuminate a room. Light presses in. Paul would describe a, a, a light under a basket as what he says right here, useless. Isn't it amazing, guys, that we have purpose as Christians? That people spend their entire lives trying to find out their destiny trying to find out what their purpose is in life. What am I going to do in the future? Who am I going to be with? What am I going to do? People spend their entire lives trying to figure this out. But we as Christians have one job that will never change. No matter who we're with, where we are, our physical state, our mission is always light. Our mission is always to illuminate in darkness. Spurgeon says this, says any commodity of Jesus that wants to be invisible is no longer, uh, sorry, any community of Jesus that wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. I'm going to say that again. A community of Jesus that wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. That convicts me. I don't know about you guys. That convicts me. A Christian that wants to be hidden from the world is not a follower of Jesus at all. In John 9, I know we're all over the Bible, but that's a good thing. In John 9, verse 1 through 5, Jesus says this. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? And this is many times, the, this disciple's perspective here is our perspective of the world and why it's so dark. We ask, we ask, like, they must have done something to get into this mess. 
Sometimes we look at people in our lives that are just a mess, and we say, they must have done something to get that way. They must deserve that suffering. But Jesus says this. He says, it was not because of the sins, of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happens so that the power of God can be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Whoa. Gnarly, right? I, I, I get chills when I read that passage. I get total chills because what Jesus is essentially saying, he's saying, yeah, there's darkness. The night is coming soon. But while I'm still here, there is light in this world. And, and, and some of you guys, you, in your workplace, you're the only Christian. In your school, in your, in your social environment, you are the only Christian. For some of you, you were the only one standing. But Jesus says here, he says, as long as I am here, there is a light in this world. And when he calls you the light of the world, he's saying, as long as you are present, there was a light. As long as you are here, there is a light. The same is true for us today as it was for Jesus back then. Now, what does that mean? It means that the day doesn't rest until you do. And I'll explain that. The day doesn't rest until you do. The sun, the light will not set until you do. You may be in a social group right now. You may be in a work environment. You may be in a relationship. You may be in any type of social circle, circle right now where you are the only light. That light will not go out until you do. And God won't let you go out. Church, while we are here on this earth, we are lights. While we are still here, there, there's hope. We're the hope on this earth, but, 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 but here's, here's the catch. I mean, not the catch, but, but here's the secret behind it all. Jesus says, I am the light. And he says, let your light so shine before men that they shall what? Come on. Glorify your father in heaven. This is the meaning right here. It is is not our light. We are light bearers. In Revelation, we see that there's, there's golden lampstands around the throne that signify the church. But lampstands don't give off light. Jesus does. And Jesus is upon the lampstands. There was a professor at a university. He was a philosophy professor and one of the kids was being smart. He was a punk in the back. And he asked the professor, he said, yeah, dude, what's the meaning of life then, professor, if you're so smart? What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Hoping to stump this professor because in the world, that's an unanswerable question. The professor, he pulled out a mirror. And he says, I always keep this mirror with me. I always keep it in my pocket. And sometimes I like to tweak with it. Sometimes I, I like to reflect the sunlight and point it at things and people bother people sometimes he says sometimes I like to take the light that reflects on the room and make it bounce off of another mirror and then it'll bounce off of another mirror 
says, I like, I love directing the light. And then he put it back in his pocket and he says, that's the meaning of life. That's the meaning of life. The meaning of life, guys, and you don't have to search for it. I'm going to tell it to you right now. Reflect the light of God. Reflect the light of God. If the good works that you do don't glorify your father in heaven, if the good works and the good deeds that you do, no matter what you do, all of that good, if it does not glorify your father in heaven, it is useless. If the work that you do glorifies yourself or glorifies someone else, that's not the gospel. In Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read almost the entire chapter, if you guys want to turn with me, in Isaiah chapter 9. And I'm going to close with this. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which is Jesus' hometown, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will, will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. There may be some of you in here tonight who are like, well, I don't feel like a light. I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like that light that Jesus is talking about. I want to be that light. I want that light. And it's so simple, guys. Jesus makes it abundantly simple for us. That the avenue for salvation is by the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, we love to separate ourselves from culture sometimes because it's scary and it's filthy. But God, being in heaven, came down to this filthy earth that he thinks is good because he deemed it good. God, separating himself from the throne room of heaven, 
came down to earth as a man and got dirty in the filth. He got dirty with the sin. He covered himself in our sin. He walked a sinless life. He walked as that perfect light. It says right here, it says, for those that live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Jesus came, seeing the world darkened. He came down on this earth and he walked as that light, pointing people as he walked still as a light with that cross on his back. He was crucified. He took on the sense of humanity, still being that light for us. And all he asks is, believe in me. If you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved to the glory of the Father. Simple. Jesus didn't separate himself from us, thank God. He didn't separate himself from the culture. He didn't create a holy enclave where only a few people can enter. He came in and set and established a city on the hill that everyone will be able to see and say, we are suffering now, that's where we go. This light we bear is a light of refuge, a light of sanctuary, and we as a church gather together as that hope. A society set upon a hill for all to gaze upon and strive for. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And here we have communion. And I go to this every single Sunday night because this is where we go back to worship. You see, how can we attain this light? How can we have this light? How can we be the salt of the earth? How does that happen? It happens because Jesus Christ created an avenue for us to get there. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to take on the sins. If you believe in me, if you believe in what my crucifixion stood for and what it accomplished and what me raising from the dead accomplished, if you believe in that, my righteousness will be in exchange for your dirtiness. He's saying, I'll take on your dirtiness and you take my righteousness. And so here we have the bread that symbolizes the body that was broken, the beard that was pulled out of his face, the back that was flogged, the wrists that nails got driven into. All for us. And so here we have the body that was broken. And here we have the blood that was shed. And I will preach this till the day I die, guys. You hear me every Sunday night saying this. I will preach this till the day I die. God wants you. God cherishes you. He has chosen you before the foundations of the world he wanted you. And he says right here, he says, to, he said to his disciples and he says to us today, this is my covenant, take and drink of it. What he was essentially saying in Hebrew tradition back then is, will you marry me? Will you be with me? Will you love me? Will you let me love you? Will you let me bless you? Will you marry me? Will you be with me? Will you take my covenant? Will you drink of it? Will you be my light on the world? Will you be my salt in the earth? Will you be the peacemakers? I, will, I want to be with you. Do you want to be with me? That's what communion is. We don't take it as ritual. 
We don't take it because it's a church thing to do. We take it as an act of worship. And tonight, if any of you desire to give your life to Jesus, he makes it abundantly clear. Believe in me. Believe in me. Believe in me. Believe in me. Marry me. Be in a covenant with me. And so if you want to receive that, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior tonight, we're going to lower the lights and we're going to pray tonight. And I don't want any peer pressure. But we're going to pray and we're going to take communion and we're going to worship. And you're going to have a chance to invite Jesus Christ in your heart tonight. Whether it's one of you, two of you, four of you, or none of you, praise God if all of you are saved. But tonight we're creating an avenue for that. Jesus Christ died for you, and he wants to live with you. Amen? Lord.